God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So we open our mouths and pant because we long for your commandments. So turn to us now and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. And make your face shine upon your servants and teach us your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Acts chapter 4. Book of Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin our reading at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and read through chapter 5, verse 11. So we'll begin our reading at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, as we consider the ninth and 10th commandments tonight. That we should not bear false witness against our neighbor and not covet anything that belongs to our neighbor. So our reading comes from God's words, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the disciples' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, There's lots of people that say, you know, I wish we could get back to the church in the apostolic times. I'm not sure always that we want to be in the church in apostolic times. Um, It was a a, a dangerous time to be in the church, to be sure. 
Um, there was a lot of good things going on as we read and a lot of dangerous things going on as well. Um, and I read that passage in connection with the ninth and the tenth commandments, for we see both, I think, uh, in operation in that story. Um, of course, the ninth commandment having to do with telling the truth and lying, and there are two people here who have clearly lied. Um, but I think when we read the story of Barnabas that comes before that, we understand that this also is a violation of the, the law against coveting. Uh, Barnabas was faithful in selling what was his and giving all of the proceeds to the church. Um, he, was, he was generous and honest and gave everything that he had, and I'm sure great honor came on him on account of it. Um, and I think we see that Ananias and Sapphira in some sense wanted the honor he had, but didn't want to make the sacrifice he made. Um, and so there was, I think, a, an element of the, the coveting what he had as well. And so I wanted to think of these two commandments together, uh, the ninth and the tenth commandment, even though they're not part of the same Lord's Day. Uh, every, every commandment of the Ten Commandments has its own Lord's Day, um, except for the third commandment, which has two Lord's Days. Um, and the Tenth Commandment is sort of included in the summary of why we go through the law. Um, and so I thought it would be good for us maybe to think about the Ninth and the Tenth Commandment. Sometimes the Tenth Commandment gets, gets short consideration because there are important things that are said in the next Lord's Day about why have we given so much attention to the Ten Commandments and can we keep these things perfectly, which are important questions. Um, and so we, we often don't talk, I don't think, as much about the Tenth Commandment. So that's why I wanted to handle the Ninth and the Tenth Commandment together. Um, because it gets less time of its own. And I think also we spend less time thinking about the, ten com the Tenth Commandment because of how we define it. The Tenth Commandment is really having desires for breaking one of the other commandments. So I think maybe we spend less time on it because having understood the other commandments, we understand what covenanting is. It's wanting something that one of the other commandments forbids. You might have noticed that question 113, that's how covetousness is defined and dealt with that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Uh, the sin of coveting is bound up with the other commandments. Um, and so maybe that's why it doesn't get as much of its own consideration. But I wanted to think about that together with the ninth commandment and see the warning about breaking both and how we do well to keep both. Uh, so before we get to the 10th commandment, obviously we have to deal with the 9th commandment. We have to be orderly about these things after all. So we have to go to the 9th commandment first. And the 9th commandment has important things to say about telling the truth. Um, it's, it's hard to read a paper or hear a news story. Any, I don't know if anyone reads papers anymore. But it's hard to look at the news at all anymore and not hear somebody talking about fake news. Um, everybody is talking about how this isn't true or that isn't true, um, and it's often hard for us to know what is true and what is going on, what's being reported in the world, uh, fake news, and especially as our societies become more fractured, more polarized in different directions, it's hard to know who's telling the truth. Um, and Truth has fallen on hard times, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, in, in the way we talk about the news. But also, I've been sort of amazed at how we live in the time of, you know, video recordings. And so you can record what someone has said, and you can play back what they've said, and they'll still deny that they said that. Um, and either whichever political side of the aisle you're talking about, you can see someone saying, this is the worst thing in the world when their guy was in charge. And then saying, this is the best thing in the world now that their guy is not in charge. Um, and you could play those two things side by side, and it's almost, 
as if there's no shame about saying one thing and then the other, um, contradicting yourself. It's, I think in a lot of ways, the truth has fallen on hard times. And especially when it comes to politicians, you say, well, that's just politics. Um, after all, Mark Twain said there may be no native criminal class in America except possibly for Congress. Um, and maybe we just expect that um, of Congress. But I think we should expect more about, of the truth. And God certainly ex expects more of the truth. He expects his people to be those who are zealous for the truth. Zealous for telling the truth. Zealous for protecting the people from falsehood. Uh, zealous for protecting our neighbor's good name. Um, that has a lot of implications for us as we think about social media and all sorts of other things where people are bickering and slandering each other and, and commenting and, and criticizing one another. Are we doing the best we can to protect our neighbor's good name? The Ninth Commandment has a lot of things to say to us. And so we just want to think about the Ninth and the Tenth Commandments tonight and under two simple headings, the importance of the truth in God's law and the importance of contentment in God's law. The importance of the truth and the importance of contentment. Because the truth, obviously, is the opposite of the lie. And I think contentment is the off opposite of covetousness. Um, and so we want to think about the importance of the truth and the importance of contentment as we see it in God's Word. Um, many people have pointed out that the Ninth Commandment sort of in interestingly comes to us in a sort of courtroom context. Right? God's law does not say, do not lie. Um, he, he does mean that, so I'm not trying to excuse liars. Um, he does mean that, but notice how he puts it. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, it, it sets that commandment almost in a courtroom context to speak of it first and foremost in terms of testimony, uh, that God is concerned for the truth being publicly declared. Um, and I, I was interested to read one commentator talking about the Ninth Commandment, and he said this, We must always include reference to the significance of the system of justice. Past interpreters of the Ninth Commandment never hesitated to mention the various persons who have roles in administrating justice. These interpreters would demand of a judge that he be incorruptible and not judge rashly. They required of the accuser that he never accuse somebody unnecessarily out of antipathy or revenge. They expected the witness to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. The lawyer was forbidden to call black white and white black, even when they had the valuable function of coming to the aid of the accused and demanding that proof of guilt, if there was any, to be airtight. These interpreters required the accused to confess his guilt where such guilt was proved. And I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at the, at the Ninth Commandment to see how important the truth is, especially in a legal context. Uh, that there, there be truth in the advocates, that there be truth in the accuser, that there be truth in the accused, um, that there be truth in the judge and how he weighs the evidence. That all these, all these positions, all of these aspects require truth or injustice will be done. Um, and that's the framework in which God first sets um, these, these things. And so I think that's important for us to recognize that the truth was vital to their society functioning. Uh, that, that for Israel to function as it ought to function, people had to be truth speakers. They had to be, tell the truth about their neighbor and not 
bear false witness. Um, and that's a, that's a sure way that justice will be either corrupted or denied. And so everybody has to be truth speakers. And we can see how that was particularly important back in times before you could run fingerprints or DNA evidence or other sorts of things that, that we can do now to prove guilt, but so much of guilt depended on eyewitness testimony. And that was why God had said that you can't convict someone without the testimony of two or three witnesses. Um, because it's important that there be truth, that there be a standard of proof that's demonstrable, that there be safeguards for the proceedings so that people were not treated unjustly. And all of this testifies to just how seriously God takes the truth. Uh, just how important the truth is to the Lord in everything that's done. Um, that's why God set those standards for proof. Uh, that's why he safeguarded the proceedings for his people. Um, we can read in Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 20, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Um, God had an interesting way of safeguarding legal proceedings back then. He said, if you accuse someone of something and you're found to have accused them falsely, then whatever you wanted to happen to them happened to you. If you wanted them to lose their house and it was shown that you were falsely accusing them, then you lost your house. If you sought to take their life and it was found that you had falsely accused them, then your life was taken. Um, you know, our politicians talk about tort reform. That might help with our tort problem. If you sue someone for $3 million and it's found that you don't have a case, then you pay $3 million. That might help. I'm not advocating for that. That's just free. Um, but the point, of course, is clear what the Lord is saying, right? That the truth is important, that it's true. It, the truth has to be safeguarded. The procedures in place are there to safeguard the truth and make sure the truth is told and the truth is the action on which we take. And so it had a particular importance in a courtroom setting, but as with all the commandments, we understand that it has a much broader application than just in the courtroom. Um, that comes out clearly in how, the, how question 112 lays out the command, that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, I should avoid under penalty of God's wrath every kind of lying and deceit as the very works of the devil. And in court and everywhere else, I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's good name. And I think it, having that courtroom setting and having that, that full scope of the law applied, I think that can help us attach our minds to how this law functions in the life of the believer. It says to us, first and foremost, not to be false witnesses. Not to say things that are untrue. And I like how the catechism points out we can, we can not tell the truth by twisting the truth. By not quite 
saying what other people said and subtly undermining or changing what they said by twisting their words. And this is clear that God is saying you're not to be a false witness in any way. You're not to tell any kind of fib or half-truth or massage the truth um, to, to get things out. We're to be We're to be true in what we say. We're not to be false witnesses. We're also not to be false accusers. Um, The the older form of the catechism used to talk about backbiting and slandering. Um, That's ways we're not necessarily being false witnesses, but we are being false accusers. Uh, We say things about people behind their back, accuse them of things that are not true or or right, or nice, gossip usually falls into this category. Um, Where we're saying things about people. We're not to be false accusers. Accuse people of things that are not true. And we're not to be false judges. To condemn people unheard or rashly. Um, You know, so often in our culture with our immediate access to information, everybody wants you to make a snap decision on every... You know, news item that comes across, you know, that, that immediately when you hear of a police shooting or some other kind of thing that people, well, what is your, what is your take on it? And I sort of say, well, I, I don't have a take on it. I don't know what happened. Um, that, that to just condemn out of hand either direction w- would be to condemn rashly, to be condemned unheard. Um, and, and the Proverbs warn against that. They say, if you know, if you answer before you hear... It's to your folly and shame. That makes sense, doesn't it? You have to hear things and know things before you opine about things. Proverbs also reminds us that the person who states their case first sounds right until the other one comes and examines them. Um, I I was interested in the impeachment hearings that one, one reporter said, it seems like every time we have the morning is the prosecution and the afternoon is the defense and what sounds so convincing in the morning doesn't sound so convincing in the afternoon. Now you may or may not agree with that and I'm not trying to make a political point. But as they're saying this, I thought, yeah, that's what God's word tells us. The first side sounds true until the other comes and examines him. Um, And we shouldn't be a people who rush to judgment, who judge falsely, who judge rashly or without hearing all the facts. Because then we're judges who don't care about the truth. And all of this is by way of saying that God's people ought to care about the truth. God cares about the truth. Um, God never is a witness against anyone falsely. God never accuses anyone falsely. God never judges falsely. Um, and we are to be a people who are concerned with the truth. I think one of the one of the greatest images of someone who's not concerned with truth is when Pilate is sitting in judgment of Jesus Christ, and Pilate is having a discussion with Jesus in John chapter eighteen, um, trying to figure out if he's a king or not, and really not being able to sort of fathom what Jesus is telling him. But in John 18, 36 through 38, Jesus answers Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I not, might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Um, Now, there's no more discussion. This is a dismissive comment by Pilate. Almost to say, what what does the truth matter? Um, it's It's all pragmatics, Jesus. The truth doesn't really matter. That's how he can find no guilt in him and still condemn him to the cross. But Jesus says, I've come to bear witness about the truth. And that's why we should be a people that are concerned with the truth. Because as the catechism rightly says, what are, what are lies at the end? They're the work of the devil. They're the language the devil speaks. Um, every kind of lying and deceit are the works of the devil. That's the fundamental difference between God and the devil. Is that God will tell you the truth even if you don't want to hear it. He will tell you the truth always and for your good, even if it's a hard truth to hear. Uh, The devil will always tell you a lie that's the truth you want to hear, that's that's the truth you wish was true, the truth you want to hear, that you want to believe. He never really challenges you to anything, and he doesn't really care how he lies, I remember a pastor saying, you know, the devil, the, the woman who, who's going to the abortion clinic, the devil will be in her ear as the most pro-choice voice as she goes in. And after she does the deed, the devil will be the most pro-life voice in her ear as she comes out. He'll be talk, trying to talk her into doing it going in, and then he'll be accusing her of doing it coming out. He doesn't care. All he does is lie. All he does is accuse. All he wants to do is kill and hurt by what he says, and that's how Jesus described him. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And God's wrath rightly falls on dishonesty. That's the wonderful thing about our God. He never tells us things that are not true. He always tells us the things that are true even if they're hard. People don't like being told that they're sinners. People don't like being told that they are under the wrath of God and that apart from God's intervention, they will die in their sins. But Jesus came into the world to testify about the truth, which was, yes, you are going to die in your sin if you don't turn to me, but I was sent into the world so that you would turn to me and live. You can't live as you are without Christ. But the good news that God says is the truth is if you put your trust in Christ, you will live. And that there's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. You can see why the truth is so important. Uh, It is literally a matter of life and death in the world. And God doesn't want his people to be people that speak falsehood, but rather people who speak the truth that we should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it, and that we should do what we can to defend and advance our neighbor's honor and reputation. That we should be zealous for the truth um, and zealous not to condemn people falsely. And so that's what, this, that's what this law calls us to, to always be a true witness, uh, to always be a true judge, to never be a false accuser, but always be a true defender. Um, that, that's the way we walk in this law in a way that's pleasing to our God. Um, 
because truth uh, is important to him and should be important to us. That's the importance of truth for God and for his people. Um, and it also leads to then the importance of contentment. Covening has to deal, I think, particularly with being content. Um, why, why do we lie? Why do we do any of the things that arise in the law that are against God's will? It's because we want something that we don't have. Uh, that we, we're desiring something else and we think that breaking God's law will get us that something else that we desire. Um, and that's why the, the law of God comes to us lastly about contentment. And so not only should we hate any of these sins, but we should hate anything that drives us to these sins. Uh, that might make us desire what these sins might promise falsely to give us. And so it's a wonderful summary of the, of the law, the 10th commandment in, in question 113 of the catechism, that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Um, coveting is a sin that's committed in the mind and heart that leads to other sins. It might, you might say it's the root of all sins or the unholy mother of all sins. Uh, that's where it all comes from, desiring. Um, and coveting really involves having some kind of unholy discontent over what we have um, and an unholy desire to have what someone else possesses. I think that's at the root of Ananias and Sapphira's sin. You know, just, just looked at in isolation, I think the problem can be, why is, why is God so harsh to them, it seems? Why is Peter so harsh to them? Um, what is really involved in their sin? Don't, obviously, don't they give money to the church? Why is that not, not a good thing? But, but read in light of what Barnabas has done, it makes it clear what their sin is. They're trying to act as if they're doing what everyone else is doing. What, what do they want? They want the regard that everyone else has for a sacrifice like, like the sacrifice made by Barnabas. To have something and to sell it and to divest himself completely of it, to lay it at the apostles' feet and just to have it given away to, to minister to the needs of fellow brothers and sisters. Not everybody in the church would have had those means. right? Not everybody in the church would have been able to do something like that. And it was a wonderful testimony that Barnas was not only able to do something like that, but he was willing to do something like that. It's, it's probably one of the reasons that everybody called him a son of encouragement, right? Here is someone who gave freely for his brothers and sisters, and I'm sure there was great honor that came to him in the church, and that, that's right that he would be honored for that kind of gift to his brothers and sisters, a kind of gift that's totally selfless, that doesn't ask for anything in return. And what, what do Ananias and Sapphira see? They want that that honor, they want that regard, they want that respect, but they don't want the sacrifice it costs. So they sell the land they have and they pretend that they've given the whole price that they got for it to the Lord. And in order to get what belonged to someone else, they lie. Um, they lie about the price of the land and it costs them their lives. There's an unholy discontent with what they have and an unholy desire to have what someone else is. Um, and we, we see those, those desires that we have become unholy desires uh, when we want something at the expense of your neighbor. 
And there are several examples we could think of in the Bible of people who do that beyond Ananias and Sapphira. We can think of Ahab wanting Naboth's vineyard. Right? He wanted this vineyard and the guy wouldn't sell it to him. Uh, but he really wanted it. Um, he wanted it at his expense. We can think of David and Uriah's wife Bathsheba. He wanted someone else's wife. Um, something that was not his. Someone who was not his. We can think of Achan stealing from the treasure in Jericho the things that God had told them to devote to destruction. Um, we can read of these things. And usually they come about because we convince ourselves that our contentment depends on them. That, that we can't be happy without taking that thing that is someone else's. Right? That, that contentment can't be found in any other way. Um, we can't be happy without that person's possession, that person's property, that person's spouse. That's how those things come about. We, we become like Ahab, who's sort of a pathetic picture in 1 Kings 21.4. After the, the man won't sell him the vineyard, Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. He threw a temper tantrum. He's the king. And of course, his wicked wife comes in and says, is this any way for a king to act? Go kill the guy and take it. Um, you know, but th this is how it works. You convince yourself you can't be happy without the thing that belongs to someone else. You can't be happy with what you have. And so Ahab stirs up some false accusers to accuse Naboth of things that aren't true, and he has Naboth killed, and he takes his vineyard. Same way David comes up with lies, and when his lies don't work, his adultery leads to murder. Um, or Achan steals what doesn't belong to him, lies about it, tries to hide it under his tent, and is found out and finally executed. Or Ananias and Sapphira, who lie to the Lord, steal from the Lord, try to offer him false worship, um, and end up blaspheming the name of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how all of these things, coveting was the unholy mother of everything that followed? It was the desire and the lack of contentment in the things that were theirs that led them to do all these other things that violated the commandment of the Lord? Um, contentment is where we so often go wrong and why it's related so much to other sins in Scripture. The coveting is so closely related to immorality in Ephesians 5, or coveting so closely related to idolatry. Um, in Colossians 3. And so if we want to really avoid this sin, we have to avoid the lie that says your contentment is dependent on things that belong to other people. And that you can only be happy if you seek the things that don't belong to you, but that belong to others. And so how do we counter this sin? We counter this sin by pursuing contentment and setting our desires on the things that are pleasing to God. Ananias and Sapphira either have been to be just, they should have been happy for Barnabas and said, he is a good man and he deserves the honor he's receiving. Or they should have done honestly before the Lord and given up their whole property and then they could have shared that same honor freely. It would have been honor that was all their own and not attempted to be stolen from Barnabas. Uh, and that, that's sort of Peter's point. You know, God gave you that land. And when you sold it, the money was yours. 
You weren't under any obligation to sell it. And even when you sold it, you weren't under any obligation to give the money to the Lord. But to pretend you were giving the money to the Lord, to lie about it, is where the sin lies. And we need to pursue contentment. To set our desires on the things that don't disappoint us. Because one of the lies that sin likes to tell is that sinful desires can be satisfied by reaching out and grasping the things that belong to other people. That that the thing you want, you can find satisfaction, you can find contentment in taking that. That's the lie that it tells you. And we have to be very clear about how sin operates. Sinful desires can never be satisfied. They don't work that way. Sin is never satisfied. Sin never says, that's enough. Sin is more like fire in Proverbs. Where it says, you know, fire is one of those things that never says enough. Right? We know that when wildfires burn during fire season, the fires don't just say, you know what, that's enough. We're done. The fire will burn as long as it has fuel, as long as it can. The next thing it consumes, it will. Sin works that way. Sinful desires can never be satisfied. They can only be gratified for a time, and then they'll seek more. They never say enough. And that's what the Lord is teaching us. If we want to find contentment, we will never find it in trying to gratify sinful desires. But God offers us something better, which are desires that can be satisfied. That's the good news about the the things that God offers that are alternatives to the sinful desires. He offers things that are real treasure, real possessions, really ours, and things that offer satisfaction. The things that can really satisfy. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. His kingdom and his righteousness is something that can actually satisfy. We will be satisfied in heaven. There won't be anything else that we are longing for. Um, That's what makes heaven so difficult for us to picture in this life because we don't know what it is to be fully and finally satisfied. To not need anything, to not want anything, to have far more than we could ask or imagine given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's the beautiful promise that he makes. That our desires will be satisfied if our desires are after the things of the Lord. And that's why we need to pursue contentment in our life. First um, Timothy 6, 6-8, through 8, we read, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Right, we have Jesus, and having Jesus, we have everything we need. Um, we have the promise that everything we need all of, our, all of our godly desires, our hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those things will be satisfied. Um, that we can be content that with God we have all things. That was the fundamental problem for Ananias and Sapphira. A lack of contentment with what God had given them. And believing the lie that they could find contentment in some other way. 
than by following God's commandments. And their story should just stand as a reminder to us, if we look for contentment apart from our Heavenly Father, we'll never find it. Um, Covetousness is is a beast whose belly is never full. It's like the fire that never says enough. Um, We'll never be able to satisfy those things. One commentator said, all our discontent comes from the same kind of reasoning, if only. Once we start thinking this way, there is no end to our discontent. Scripture rightly says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth in his income. If we really want to be satisfied, we have to seek other things. We have to seek our contentment in the Lord and the things that he gives to us. Um, And with those, we will be content. They will satisfy where these other things won't. And so God calls us to resist that temptation to chase after other things and to be willing to violate God's law to get those other things, recognizing that you'll never find contentment in any of those things. They'll lie to you and say you can, but you won't find it. Contentment is found in walking with the Lord in doing what is pleasing in his sight. Um, Then we'll find contentment and rest for our souls. May God help us to do that by his spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to keep it out of gratitude for what you've done to us in Christ that we would not seek to justify ourselves by our law-keeping, but do these things because we know that they are pleasing in your sight. Help us to understand the importance of truth and to pursue it, to be content with the things that you've given to us. Help teach us that we don't need anything that is our neighbor's to be content in this world, but that we can come to you and ask of you all that we stand in need of and that you will freely give it to us because you are a loving God and a faithful Father. So help us to recognize that in you we have all that we need, and we are tempted to question whether we have all that we need in you. May you turn our eyes to our Lord Jesus Christ and remind us that if you've given us him, which is your most precious gift, how will you not with him give us all things? Lord, fill our minds and hearts with that great gift of of your Son for our sins. And may we be content in him and what is pleasing in his sight. Hear our prayers and answer us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.